welcome everyone to the 46th episode of the Do Gen Mindset podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with uh, Nick Tartaglia. Nick, what's going on? Not bad. Uh, it's an, I'm excited today because this is going to be a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a long time, more in depth. So um, I'm happy to be here today and I'm happy this is going to be a good conversation. I think it's a great segue with, uh, again, all the, all the chaos that's been going on in this, in this world that we're in. Um, a sector that uh, unfortunately has not been getting a lot of love recently. Everybody's eyes are kind of chasing Dogecoin and cryptocurrencies and all that other stuff. But um, when stuff does get a little bit more dark, to say the least, um, this is going to be a sector that um, or an area of the market that most people are going to start paying attention to. Exactly. Um, so without further ado, we've got a very special guest here today. This gentleman is a widely recognized analyst in the precious metals industry and has consulted for multiple hedge funds, high net worth investors, mining companies, depositories, and bullion dealers. He's also the publisher of the Morgan Report, a world-class publication designed to build and secure wealth. He's also the author of The Silver Manifesto and a featured speaker at investment conferences worldwide. And his ideas are expressed in the movie The Four Horsemen Film, a featured documentary which can actually be found on YouTube. Um, and this gentleman has also appeared on CNBC, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, MSNBC, BNN Canada, has done interviews for the Wall Street Journal, Futures Magazine, Investing Rules Books, and numerous other publications. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, David Morgan. Dan, thanks for having me. <laughs> so David, to start off the podcast, because the youth seem to have a harder time kind of connecting their actions with the macro picture of the world, which is where the storytelling is really told. We always like to start off our guests with just getting to know them better, their story, their history, and how they got into the game that they're playing now in their current, um, in the current year, 2021. Okay, Nick, I'll give it a go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long story. I'll try to make it somewhat succinct, but uh, when I was 11 years old, the, mm. Coinage changed from 90% silver coins to what I call Johnson slugs. And that, I made a note of that. I didn't, you know, think I'd be the silver guru years later or mm -hmm. get that involved, <clears throat> but I did note it. And it seemed interesting to me that I knew that a copper cl clad, you know, copper with clad nickel on it <clears throat> looked very different than a silver coin. Couldn't be worth the same. But as I said, a lot of adults seem to just you know, move on. But what happened was uh, Gresham's law, you know, uh, good money chases out bad. Or, and what happens is people go for the good money and hoard it and the bad money stays in circulation. So I started paying more attention to finance. I was just kind of obsessed about money and finance. I learned as a young guy that uh, people can make a living by being an investor. And how do you do that? And so all this stuff sort of around in my head. And by the time I um, got my first degree in aero engineering, I still was pursuing uh, trading. I started trading stocks at 16 under the Uniform Gift to Miners Act. So, you know, when I say I've got 40 years of experience, it's really true. Even though I did work in the aircraft industry for over a decade, I mean, that whole time I was in the markets. That's, that was your and passion. That was my passion. And also uh, went back to school and got a degree in finance. So, you know, I had that as well. So as time went on, um, I learned about the newsletter industry and these people that in those days, there was no internet. So these were hard copy, eight pages, usually 
folded in an envelope. And this was like inside information. It was fascinating. In fact, I was introduced to it by one of the test pilots. We're out on a flight line waiting for an engine run. And he pulls this thing out of his pocket and starts reading it. I'm going, man, this is exactly what I know about the economy. You know, this, this is the truth. (laughs) Where do you get this stuff? So I started tracking that down and started subscribing. And I was a newsletter junkie in the early days, mostly around the gold story, somewhat the silver story. And then uh, after I was laid off from aircraft, uh, I worked for a CFP certified financial planner for a while. I did actually some coin stuff for a very short time, traded for a living for a while. It's marginally successful, not super great. But And then when I saw the opportunity of the internet, I decided to go ahead and start this career with uh, a newsletter business. But I really didn't sit down and go and start a newsletter business. What I did was I made a web page, did it myself. I used Netscape. My next door neighbor was pretty adept on the early days when there wasn't much... Uh, knowledge about the web and web browsers were really not very much in for. You had to kind of do it on your own. But I built this page for research on silver and gold, but primarily on silver. And it was in the public domain. So one day I got a call and this gentleman asked me, you know, how much, so what do you do? And I said, well, I write a newsletter, you know, primarily around the silver market. And he said, well, how much is it? And I made up a number and he says, I'll buy it. So I was in business for, you know, 12 milliseconds. And that's what I'd always wanted to do was my passion, as you said. And I levitated off my chair. You know, I was so happy. And, that started and then off I your, yeah. came out, I came down right away. You know, I levitated for about three seconds. And then I did the one-handed clap. I went like that. I said, wait a minute. What did I just do? <laughs> I told one guy I'd write everything about the silver market that I know for one year for 60 bucks, that does not sound like early retirement. (laughs) And so believe it or not, the first year I was in business, I made $6,000. I mean, but I was, I persevered. I had the capital to rely on to live within my means and, and press on. And of course there were back in the 2011, I mean, there were days I made $6,000 in a day, you know? Not often, but it's happened. So anyway, that's it. That's kind of the most shortened version I can give you. And what what really brought... Okay, so when you started off in finance, what really kind of got you to start falling in love with the macro story? Because I know you, I see you talk a lot about macroeconomics and the macro dynamic of the forces. So like, what, what was it about macro dynamics that kind of got you obsessed with those forces? The Austrian School of Economics, the Mises.org Institute, mm-hmm. reading Murray Rothbard primarily, and understanding that one of the primers is what has the government done to our money? And so just learning what uh, monetary history is all about and what happens and how it devastates the, the people. And yeah. uh, so I wanted to do something about it. I mean, back when I was very young, you know, 20s, 30s, the uh, it was called the honest money movement or the hard money movement. And silver actually, I think, had a bigger role back then. And this is, you know, me living through it. It can't be proven. But as I said, you know, the coinage was silver until 1965. So when we hit 1971, you're only like six years in. So a lot of people, you know, that were working for a living, remember that, you know, silver is the money and it's not anymore. What does that mean? A lot of people had 
similar thoughts to me. So there was a, I'd say more general knowledge about inflation and precious metals, but that's been diluted over the years for a variety of reasons we can talk about. No, I entirely agree. Just, just to say this quick is like how I really became more obsessed with the macro story was very much an obsession with classical economics, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, Ludwig van Mises, uh, John Adam Smith. So, and, and it, it, it kind of tells a beautiful story about how forces move. So, and there seems to be a kind of a connection that a lot of people that we talk to, especially with the older generations or the people that have been in it for a long time, the ones that seem to be the best storytellers are all the ones that seem to have the same kind of philosophical or economic background in terms of their understanding of markets. So, you know, it's, it's, I appreciate getting to watch people like yourself. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's not the, uh, it's not what's broadcast by the mainstream financial no. press, as you well know, but it is yeah. the truth. Or at least closer to the truth than this Keynesian nonsense that you can have modern money theory and debt doesn't matter and we can print ourselves wealthy and all those things that usually are a precursor to a inflationary blow off in a currency crisis. Yeah, I think it's uh, really where a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out, you know, most of them are investors, most of them, most of them are kind of just starting off as well. Um, and the most common question that Nick and I get all the time is, are you buying cryptocurrencies? Are you buying the next hot stock? And we've adopted more of like a contrarian philosophy. It's like, well, wait a minute, you got to look at it from a macro standpoint. So you've obviously lived through your fair share of different crises. Unfortunately, Nick and I have not actually with what we know now lived through an actual bear market yet. I think Nick, you and I were still in high school when, when 08 happened, but, mm -hmm. um, what can you tell us as to what you're seeing right now yeah. that one has you alarmed? And the second thing is, where do you see the next big opportunity uh, for younger investors, especially to kind of hedge what, what's, what's ahead in this, in this crazy world? Well, I mean, it's very apparent for you know, me and you know, you're having me on your show and thank you, but you know, you know it as well. I mean, basically this um, ramp up, we'll call it in the, mm -hmm. Money supply. I mean, we've gone from, uh, you know, just six, nine months ago to whatever the base money supply was. We've added about $5 trillion to it. I think something around 30%. So those are loan shark type of numbers, you know. I mean, to get, you know, 30% increase in something, you know, I mean, think of it as an interest rate. It's not, but, you know, if I give you, you know, a hundred bucks and, you know, six months later, you got to pay me 130, that's pretty exorbitant. And yet this is the amount of money flowing into the system that basically is having very little effect. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. I mean, the idea that the inflation is low is true if, and only if you believe the government's numbers, because yeah, exactly. they're skewed so much. Yeah. And, you know, one of, um, my contemporaries, Keith Weiner, I like Keith, very smart. In my view, maybe too smart. I mean, he makes the case that, you know, no one really knows what inflation's true number is. I would say <clears throat> I'd somewhat agree with that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he makes the argument that you can't compare, oh, let's say a 2010 Toyota with a 2020 Toyota, you know? So you can't say that there was an inflation in price because, you know, all the electronic changes, the safety features. And I get that. Mm -hmm. So let's get real basic. Let's look at the hamburger index. You know, what's a McDonald's burger cost in 2000 and 2010 and 2020? That's pretty much the same damn thing it was 
you know, for 20 years. So you could take metrics like that. I'm not going to base my whole economic theory on what the price mm-hmm. of a McDonald's hamburger is, but at least we are looking at a yeah. consistency as far as the product. And why does the price go up? I mean, when I was a kid, believe it or not, you guys would probably laugh. McDonald's, when it first started making the chains and, you know, business people were buying them, a McDonald's hamburger was 15 cents. I don't even know what that would even look like. That's, that's I've never, I don't even know what it, you can tell. Here's something that really scares me too, is the, do you see an impact in the macro story that we have, that they said we've have seen the largest regression in the middle class in decades. Um, so if the middle class is regressing, we have the poverty class that's going to regress. And then because of inflation, obviously, like, I mean, we're in Canada, we're from Montreal. So we see that the health food is going up, the healthy food is going up. So as we're marginalizing the youth, the middle class, the poverty class, there's going to be another health crisis in the sense that we're driving also more people into cheap foods, which will then ripple into the productivity. And then we also have the younger generations that are obsessed with, you know, tertiary type of sector economies where they're obsessed with just YouTube or Instagram or or singing more like leisure services rather than fundamental productivity services in the economy. So it's like, those are kind of the, the, the future outlook macro fears we see that would need a shift in order to kind of, because, you know, like as you talk all the time and Rick rule and, and countless other gentlemen, it's we're, 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 we're digging a hole, as we say, with the monetary system and the printing, the political abuse with the uh, social ideologies. So like, do you, do you, where do you see optimism in the sense of what could we do to fundamentally restructure or kind of adapt our behaviors to fundamentally improve the outcome? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, first of all, people have got to understand and most do instinctively, but never really think it through, you know, the role of money versus currency. You know, I mean, I may write a paper, I'm debating whether I want to do it. I might do it in my private work. I'm not trying to get new subscribers, mm-hmm. although I always enjoy having more new subscribers. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's the ownership theory of money. Because right now, you know, the Canadian government, the US, Australian, the euro, it doesn't matter. It's a dead instrument. Every piece of currency is loaned into existence. There's no way to pay it off. When you pay a dollar to the grocer or Canadian dollar to the grocer, you are exchanging a dead instrument for a real good. So the ownership theory of money is that you own something of value, which of course would be gold and silver primarily. I mean, you could go in there with, uh, oh, let's see, a hammer, you know, real value and make an exchange. But uh, money is defined by the people. And it's voted by the people. It's kind of a popularity contest, if you will, with all these things you can use as barter, the ones that work the best and most people adapted to were precious metals. It's been that way over and over again. So the main thing to do is one, know the difference and get educated. The second thing is to vote. And the most powerful vote you have is with your pocketbook. So, and this is tough. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, vote with our currency and you know turn things around it could or certainly could have an effect but you know you're going to boat boycott you know the gasoline state stand no you got to drive to work you know are you going to only buy healthy food as you were indicating no not if you're poor you got to get whatever you can to yeah, eat exactly. um so you know where can you go and the answer is to go about 
you do the best you can with what you've got. Mm. And the middle class is getting squeezed out. <clears throat> There's going to be two class society in most countries. It'll be the elite and everybody else. And it's a very big trend and it's very obvious. So um, I think from my perspective and subject to change, I mean, I've been wrong, but I promptly admit it when I am. But um, I think that we're going to have to hit bottom, you know, just like the old adage about a drug addict or alcoholic or something along those lines. Until we hit bottom, I don't think we, the people, have much chance mm. of building back up. And the bottom doesn't have to be, you know, necessarily measured in what the value of a currency is. The bottom could be much more of a psychological event where people say, I've had enough of this mask nonsense. I've had enough of hovering and bowing to our leaders. I've had enough of these hypocrites that say we can't do parties, but they have them. I've had enough about you know, all this stuff that's going on in, our eye, in front of our eyes with this hypocritical political class that thinks they're better than us. And so there could be a backlash and they actually fear that because uh, especially with the internet the way it is, <clears throat> certainly it's been, uh, let's say controlled of late as we all know, if you, know, if you say anything politically incorrect, you're banned from YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or all this crap. But then the free market, you know, you have bit shoot and rumble and all these things that pop up because people really want to know what the truth is. So my idea is that we are starting to reset overused word and it's not going to go exactly like the powers that be wanted to. I don't think there's too many variables and there's going to be some backlash. How much, where, I don't know, but we're seeing it already. I mean, we're seeing these protests like in London where everybody took off their mask and walked around and Here basically too, yeah. gave had signals to the, to the bobbies and all this stuff. So this is the power of the people. People have the power. They have it in their pocketbook and they have it in their numbers. And we have the truth on our side. It's just most people are taught to be compliant. You know, someone knows more than you. We're taught from the very beginning. We're schooled, you know. Yeah. Well, you can't, you know, build your own, you know, whatever. You need a carpenter to do it for you. you know, in the you classical sense, they say it's the, um, the welfare state mentality. Right. And victim too. Victim exactly. is just really, really hard. It's not my fault that, you know, I don't have this or that. It's not my fault. I'm not healthy. It's not my fault that my relationships always fall apart. It's not my fault. I don't have a good job. And so victim, victim, victim. And it's really subtle. It's not, you know, as blatant as I'm talking about, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are in that mindset without even knowing they're in that mindset. They will defend them, you know, defend against me or whomever questions, you know, what their philosophy is. Oh, I'm not a victim. You know, I just didn't get to go to school because my dad didn't have the money. Well, there's people that dads didn't have the money that went to school. So how do you argue against that? Right. Mm. So I don't want to go too down the far down the rabbit hole, but I think you get the gist of it. Yeah, is, of course. I think we have to hit a bottom. Mm -hmm. A and, behavioral type of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I, it, it will need to happen too, because, and I think you just have to go back to what happened historically, like go back to when the Romans started, when the Roman empire collapsed. I mean, there was, there was a war, um, you know, world war one, world war two, there were, there were conflicts of that. Do you think that given the amount of information though, that everybody has access to, and I like Nick and I like to call this to the disinformation age, cause this is where we're at right now. There's so much data 
everyone's got a different view. But do you think that in order to reach that bottom, it's going to take some kind of physical confrontation or is it going to be more psychologically, uh, you know, weaponized in a, in a way that we've probably have been seeing it recently? Like, what's that going to look like, do you think? Yeah, I'll start with saying I don't know, but I highly suspect that it will be physical. I mean, usually the psychological one, you know, it's like, well, what's, you know, I don't want to fight the mask police when I walk into the grocery store. I only need to buy, you know, some eggs and a loaf of bread. I'll put this thing on, play their game and get out of there. I mean, that's kind of the attitude of most people. They may know it's ridiculous to put a mask on when a virus, you know, putting a mask on is like putting a chain link fence in there to stop gnats from flying into your yard, you know, but anyway, I digress. So you come back to, um, I think the pressure has to be felt more than just from the authoritarian figures, but that could have an effect. I'm, I'm not trying to contradict myself, as I said earlier, you know, it's psychological. I mean, enough mm -hmm. people turn around, you know, uh, just because of the repression, it doesn't have to be hitting bottom in a, you know, physical economy sense where you no longer can get you know, gasoline as an example, but we are going that direction. I'm not saying gasoline necessarily, but, the supply chain is broken down. So let's look at se semiconductors, right? I mean, the shortage in semiconductors basically is pervasive. It's uh, an area that's used in the high-tech society and we take it for granted, it's a commodity. But with the supply chain and the diversity of different um, countries that are required to make a semiconductor, like 50 different countries to make one semiconductor. Oh, we know America or Canada, you know, we can do it. No, that's not how it works. You know, some of the elements don't come here from, <clears throat> from ourselves. Could we, you know, with a mass effort, you know, build a uh, semiconductor all within one country? I don't know, but probably. But, you know, how long does that take? So there's a lot of breakdowns that mm -hmm. haven't really manifest yet to the general public. A lot of people are sort of in a daze that, you know, I don't like it, something's wrong, but as long as I do what I'm told, things will get better. They're not going to get better. It's almost so, like, like, like you said, it's a psychological conditioning at an early age, right? Because right. the way that that education system is designed, we've always been taught and it's always in the back of your head, which, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm trying to break out of that too. I'm sure Nick's trying to break out of that too, but you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a target on your back. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. Nick, go ahead. So yeah. So I just want to say with so. Perfectly with, with segueing into the next topic is with all this uncertainty. One thing me and Dan would like to talk about is that it like in the silver market, precious metals, because silver silver is kind of like the 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 bat the the Batman that hasn't developed yet, that people are still trying to figure out the story, trying to see where they go, but what a big upside. And the way we look seem to look at it is kind of like when um, well, at least when I was a kid, we used to take bottles with the cap on, twist the bottom until the pop would top. So it appears to be like a, a massive buildup occurring into a massive bottleneck that eventually is just asking to be popped, especially with the a historical double tops of around fifty dollars in silver. So where where do you what do you what are you looking at with silver? Where where's your head at? You know what can you what can you talk about with silver? Well, uh, shameless plug, and it's really not. I mean, I did a lot for the public domain, and I always have, and I always will. I don't charge, but uh, I wrote the ten rules of silver investing probably almost 20 years ago now. <clears throat> and in that uh, 
It's on the web. You can just type in 10 rules of silver investing by David Morgan. I did a few videos of it. It's on YouTube. I think there's probably still up. I'm not sure. But in that, I say, you know, in the event, you know, no one wants to be a prophet of doom, but in the unlikely collapse of complex societies, silver will be the money of last resort, not gold, because gold will have too much value per unit. So silver will be the one. And because of this possibility, everyone should have a little bit of silver that they can, you know, retrieve if they need to. So obviously that's a worst case scenario, but you don't have to have a worst case scenario to make, you know, profit in silver. And uh, I think a lot of people are understanding, you know, there's a difference between what's real and what isn't. I mean, the precious metals were voted by humanity for thousands of years for a reason. And once the bankers were able to substitute a certificate backed up by metal, then that morphs. So you actually have like a bimetallic standard where silver or gold has to be priced in silver, which allows for a balance. But the only way that works correctly is without a fixed price ratio. The ratio needs to be determined by the marketplace and not by the bank. Mm. And then what you do is you get rid of silver and you go to gold only, which is what's happened before. And then once the banks own basically all the gold, those own the gold make the rules. And then you basically make it a, a club where only, you know, large banks own the gold, some high net worth investors own some gold, but everybody else is taught that it's a barbarous relic. It's yeah. not worth having. It's something passe, you know, Bitcoin's a lot better. It's gold 2.0 and all this stuff that goes on. So that's, um, it's a mind game. I mean, there, you know, if you start talking about, what the psychological impacts are from the mainstream press, uh, you know, you're usually labeled a conspiracy theorist. Uh, it's a conspiracy fact. I mean, the Mockingbird Press is just that, you know, the um, Mockingbird was the title for the U.S. government being able to use propaganda at all times on the U.S. population. So look it up. So CIA. we're in a world where everything is basically upside down. Very few things work the way you think they should work. And the corruption is so pervasive in all areas, the political class, the financial system, the food system, even in a housing system, I won't want to you know, get too many real estate investors, but you know, the, um, the quality of the stick frame houses are, rather pathetic relative to what they were in, say, the 1920s. I mean, when you had a two-by-four in the 1920s, you had a two-by-four and it was straight. There must, probably wasn't a knot in it. And now it's hard to find a two-by-four that isn't warped. So, again, I digress, but you get the idea. As I think the main point I haven't addressed yet, I usually say it in longer interviews like this, is the main thing to understand is that as the currency is debased and becomes worth less and worth less and eventually moves to, toward worthlessness, there is a direct correlation between the debasement of the currency and the debasement of the moral structure of the society. So honest money seems to have honest people. Dishonest money seems to have dishonest people. Uh, Robert Prechter did a lot of work in this area called socioeconomics, but it's true. Anyone that studies monetary history, when digs in fairly deep, can determine. And I think it has to do 
again, psychology word I'm using maybe too often, but the idea being, well, everybody on Wall Street knows that they're criminals, you know, and it's okay to cheat, you know, somebody's, you know, pension plan or whatever, because everybody else does it. So if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of read you something I found out. I did a uh, video today for As Good As Gold Australia. And this comes from uh, coinweek.com, a rather obscure publication. But I'm about to read you, I think is going to be uh, very, very interesting for everybody that is interested in not only the precious metals of silver, but in the way these banks think. So there's a lawsuit between... Uh, UBS and a client, he was charged for silver that they never owned and charged them storage fees on it. And in the lawsuit, this is what was said. According to the lawsuit, customers were charged storage fees every month, even though the banks not, did not actually have storage of anything. They never purchased any physical silver. Instead, the bank allegedly used customers' cash for its own purposes. In effect, customers ended up buying a non-interest-bearing silver bond, such bonds based on a premise, a promise of repayment in precious metals were typically issued in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But back then, they bore a nice interest rate, payable in gold or silver. Today's version of the precious metals bond is unallocated storage, which takes money from the investor but pays them nothing at all. And here's the one that's the real clincher for me. A very similar lawsuit was filed in 2007 against Morgan Stanley. In that case, small investors were also claiming they had been defrauded into participating in an unallocated metal storage. The bank defended itself by alleging, among other defenses, that it was simply following standard industry practices. In other words, the amount of information given to the customers the unallocated nature of the scheme, as well as the charging of storage fees for imaginary metal were standard industry practices. Mm -hmm. In light of what we now know, maybe they were telling the truth. Morgan Stanley did eventually settle for a multi-million dollar payout, but it continued to deny liability. So in other words, the industry standard, and I'm adding on to this for emphasis, you know, the industry standard, according to them, is, you know, this is the way everybody does it. So it's fraud, but since everybody else does it, it's okay for what we do, which comes full circle back to what I said. At the end of the age of empire, there's so much criminality, so much corruption, that actually they use that as a defense. They put that in their statement. Well, everybody else does it. Everyone else frauds silver investors. So why can't we? Amazing, huh? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the cop who's just handing out tickets to everybody, and then you know the guy's just following the rules, and he looks at him and he's just like, "What are you doing?" He's just like, well, "I'm just doing my job," right? It's 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 the same thing. Uh, it's funny. I did work at a bank for about a year. Um, the, the bank will remain unnamed for now, but um, <laughs> some of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, I, I I had to leave. I ended up quitting as a result of sort of the so-called unethical stuff that was happening. So. Um, it doesn't surprise me one bit, but at what point, you know, with what we just, what you just explained, like, where, where does that stop? You know, like where, where do we see just people say like enough is enough. Like, is this that where, is that where the demand puts too much pressure? Like in terms of the spot price of silver, is that where the demand outdrives the game that they're playing and it can no longer, they can't continue that game anymore. 
Yeah, I've always made the contention, it hasn't been proven yet, that if every piece of silver that people believe that they own was actually in their hands, there'd be a huge mismatch between these pool accounts, unallocated accounts, synthetic positions. You know, I mean, when you go to UBS and you're buying silver and then you're getting charged a storage fee every month, I mean, who would question that? I don't know if I would question that. But the truth is, they never even bought the silver. And the thing is, I don't want to name names, but there is an outfit out there that's pretty popular on the internet. And the exact uh, three words that I just read is in their contract. It says they can do with the cash whatever they want. And I got in a discussion with somebody that's pretty savvy. And he said, well, that's just the cash that's not invested in the metals. And I said, well, you might be told that by the company. But as a you know, legal eagle, and I'm not a lawyer, but I know how to read contracts. I, you know, I got an A in contract law during my business degree. Doesn't make me that smart. It's, it's common sense. If the contract says they can do anything they want with the money, that means they can do anything they want with the money, regardless of what the person at the place tells you they do with the money. That's hearsay. Hearsay doesn't stand up in court. So if this particular outfit was taken in the court, and they said, well, I bought all this gold from these people and I bought this much silver as well. And I found out they could do anything they want with the cash. And I don't have any silver, even though they gave me a statement that said I did. This is fraud. The judge would probably say, and I'm guessing this, so put it in that context. Well, wait a minute, Mr. Jones. You didn't read the contract. The contract says they could do with your money whatever they want to do. Does it not? You signed it. You said you wrote, read it. You said you agreed with it. So what's the problem, Mr. Jones? So this is a kind of illiteracy that we have throughout the industry because people don't want to you know, hold it in their hands. It's too much. It's easier to let the bank hold it or whatever. Am I saying that it's you know, pervasive throughout the industry? In a way, yes, but at what level? You know, I mean, is it only in North America? No, it's there in Australia. It's there probably in, around the globe. But is it 1% of the industry, 5% of the industry, 10% of the industry? What if it's 20% of the industry? So I don't know that number. The number that I do know is that those that have been caught only get a wrist slap, which really annoys me, and here's why. When the Hunt brothers bought silver, there was no limit as far as what you could buy. They just imposed that later after they made a rather substantial position in both derivatives, futures, and physical metal. And they changed the rules, said you can only sell, you can't buy. And so, you know, I'm not going to take sides on that one too much. What I will say is that that's what happened. But here's my really, I think, important view of this. <clears throat> the hunts were banned from ever getting into the silver market again for the rest of their lives. Why isn't Morgan Stanley banned from being in the silver market for the rest of their lives? Why isn't UBS banned from being in the silver market for the rest of their lives? Why isn't XYZ Bullion banned from being in the silver market for the rest of their lives? I mean, one of the saddest things to me and you know, being brought up you know, with the idea that we had you know, three divisions of government and the executive, judicial, uh, and legislative, was that if things really got bad, the judge and jury, you know, the courts would, would write it. They know the law. A republic is a nation based on law, not on majority rule. 
majority rules a democracy. We don't have that. Well, <laughs> I don't know what we have now. But the idea was we had a, a rule of law. And so we're in a situation now where it's meaningless on so many instances. And we know that because of our everyday lives. We know, as I think one of you said, something to the effect that, you know, if you're walking, I mean, I'm making this up, but someone alluded to, you know, you could just be walking down the street, so to speak, and all of a sudden you're violation because of, <laughs> you know, you got closer than six feet Damn, or, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. Do you... Do you so this was a this was something that we were that we had spoken with Andy Sheckman as well about precious metals was it was theorizing that Wall Street and institutions are happy that retail people and the youth are buying up all the crypto they want, driving all of their extra liquidity into those markets because in the meantime, behind the scenes, the institutions and the big banks they can just keep buying up the precious metals at the prices that they want until the market has the problem it has, and then the only people that well, in that environment, let's say precious metals were to readjust and be inflated in price to offset the balance sheet losses or liabilities. Well, those who win the most are the big institutions, the big players. All the little guys are left holding dead weight. Could be. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard. That's a lot of conjecture there, but it mm -hmm. makes sense. I mean, I think that the cryptos have become a diversion, whether or not that was intended or not. I don't know. But I do know that um, it's an advantageous situation. I'm sorry. It, it's an advantageous situation. That it is. is yeah. yeah. Well, it's a way to control. I mean, the derivatives markets control the price of almost everything. It's not just gold and silver. It's lumber. It's uh, oats. It's wheat. It's soybean oil. It's you know, it's everything. It's on the commodities exchange. Basically, is manipulated to some degree or another. Mm -hmm. But if you look at oil, I think the amount of uh, cover, the amount of forward sales, or I'll call them future sales, versus the actual physical supply is something like three or four days. So, you know, these people are hedging in the market, which you know, I have nothing against the theory of it. But when you get to silver, it's something like six months. I mean, it's just so off the scale as far as what's happening, yet they're in denial. Even when, you know, JP Morgan is called a criminal enterprise and they use the RICO statutes, there are still people that say, you don't understand what the, that says. <laughs> what does it say? It's in black and white. Read the black letters on the white page. It's not that difficult. But they're still apologists. You know, well, it was one bad trader out of all J.P. Morgan. No, I don't think so. I wouldn't make that argument. That's for sure. In fact, they just put something out of my Twitter feed this morning about the guy that was not indicted. Uh, that basically spilled the beans, you could say, to the authorities regarding the spoofing in a, by J.P. Morgan. And they fired him like pronto. So he's probably going to have a countersuit or he's having a countersuit. I don't remember. I read it very early this morning. But the idea is that they treated him unfairly because he uh, basically told the truth about what goes on. And of course, the bank says he was just a rogue trader. It was all his fault. You know, we don't do that, that type of thing. So, you know, it gets into this he said, she said thing. Mm -hmm. Law is very interesting because very little of it gets to the real intent of the law, unfortunately. It gets to be so microscopic in what it actually has to be to be a legal challenge that if you don't know exactly and start to sue the wrong party, the lawsuit gets thrown out. And you think, my God, all this work, I paid these top-notch lawyers, I had a team, 
and all this stuff. And even those lawyers weren't smart enough to know maybe a jurisdictional issue or what party or what statute it really was to be able to put it in the context of where the court would actually look at it. You know, I'm not a Trumpster. I, you know, I hate all politicians equally. Let me get that out there. But um, that was what happened with Trump and his legal staff was they actually misfiled what they needed to file. That's why they dropped all the cases. We're, we're, entering, uh, we're entering sort of a new sort, sort of world, especially with the Gen Zs and the millennials kind of, you know, taking over the influencer world. As, as, as Nick mentioned, you know, all the economy is centered around content creation and all that stuff, but not productivity, that's not, a, pro that's not productivity, a, but um, there, there is going to be a down market. Um, it's coming. There's no question about that. And I think when that happens, you're going to see all of the, you know, crypto speculation kind of die down. Um, so my question is when you're talking to sort of a group of millennials like this, even though the times are still pretty good, regardless of all the COVID restrictions and the market is doing well, all that, you know, cryptos are going to the moon. What, what are you telling them right now to prepare for that particular event? Because it is going to come. We don't know if it's going to be two years, three years, it could be five years, but it, it, it is coming. So what, what do you tell them specifically uh, to prepare for that? Well, as corny as it sounds, when Bitcoin dies, silver flies. I mean, we're going <laughs> like to be that. in a situation where the, you know, I used to close out every one of my podcasts with be real, get real, buy real. You know, there's very little reality left. And, you know, first of all, my, I commend you both. I have two millennial daughters. Before I get, forget, let me give you a plug. I'll uh, give myself a plug, rather. So I started a website called Morgan Millennial Minute. Yeah. I know it's a long URL. If you guys link to it, I'd be very yeah, uh, of course. happy. Of course. But of it's morganmillennialminute.com. I'm not trying to sell my newsletter there. I'm just trying to educate the millennials. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for help. Uh, I, I can't do it all. And I'm getting old and tired and more cranky by the minute. But, um, you know, podcasts like yours, uh, I got a young man running it. Maybe we can get on your feed and just start posting them for you. And then any bloggers that are, you know, on the millennial side, basically financial education is what mm -hmm. my, I'm striving to do. I'm not trying to sell them silver. I'm not a dealer. I'm not Andy Sheckman, but I'm uh, enlightened. You want to enlighten. Yeah. No, 100%. I get it. But it, it falls in line with the classical principles of economics where the only way to, because for example, a lot of times people say the only way to solve problems is by taxation, by doing this. At the end of the day, you, you can't, you can't, you can't create prosperity by taxing people. The, the only way to optimize the ecosystem is by optimizing behavior, because at the end of the day, as a behavior, it's your behavior that chooses how you consume. By consuming is how you dictate where the market moves. So and, but the thing is, especially the youth, we're not aligned with that behavior. And it's, I would say it's more disconnected in behavior than it is with the older generations. So, you know, that's why we did this, me and Dan, is because we want, we enjoy talking to gentlemen like yourself and people that have a lot to educate and guide and that have a lot of insight on these, these topics. So I want to bring you a little to back onto the silver with what forces, what forces do you see really driving the price of metal? I, you know, it, the, well, specifically silver. What what forces do you see driving the price into the direction we want it to go? Well, this will sound corny, but when you hear me out, you'll probably maybe have an aha moment. I won't give myself that much credit, but all markets move on really two things, buying pressure or selling pressure. 
Mm. The more buying pressure there is, the more a commodity mm. stock and automobile goes up mm. and the more selling pressure, the further it goes down. But what causes buying pressure? Well, that's a little tougher because there could be a multitude of reasons. But the main reason silver isn't looked at as being a good investment or a known investment is the lack of education. You know, so like in the millennial Morgan millennial minute, you know, we start talking about silver, but other things too, you know, it's gotta be balanced. I mean, 10% in silver is probably plenty for most millennials, unless they're really hardcore than 20 maybe. But the point being is that once the education hits the tipping point and once people that were, let's say silver converts that had, you know, let's just make up some numbers, 5,000 ounces of silver, 10,000 ounces of silver, 15,000 ounces of silver, in these unallocated accounts. And now they get worried about it because they realize a lot of them, not all of them. I don't know if I should say a lot. Let me reframe that to say some of them are Ponzi's. They don't have the silver. We've proven that again and again and again. And so that will be a motivator. And then the Wall Street silver folks, which I think is 40,000 strong now putting up Mm -hmm. these billboards, it's awareness. So how do you get into what I've talked about with this 90% of the move comes in the last 10% of the time? Mm-hmm. You know, that's suggesting that the biggest moves in front of us and the time duration isn't going to be that long. So we could see silver go from like 12 to 120 or 12 to 240. I know those sounds obscene, but if you told, told somebody what Amazon would do or what Tesla would do, it doesn't seem that extreme. And really, how do you get the kind of buying pressure, right? It goes up on buying pressure. Well, one, Everybody that's worried about their unallocated silver takes it or sells it for cash and reinvests in a dealer that actually delivers to them. That's part of it. The other part is awareness. Everybody that's in uh, the Wall Street Silver Reddit group starts to spread the word. And, the, and that is education. That's mm-hmm. awareness. And that is what's taking place. I'm actually pretty proud of them from the standpoint that my take, having two millennial daughters, I love them both. Uh, but my take so far incorrectly was conviction. Um, you have got to have conviction in the silver market. If you can't have conviction, you're not going to be able to participate in the silver squeeze. I mean, silver should be at like 30, 33 right now due to a massive amount of physical buying, the amount of mm-hmm. thousand ounce commercial bars that have come out of the exchange, which is a pretty rare thing. The amount of people getting out of their unallocated position and allocated all this stuff that's taking on and yet the price is just meandering in a trading range of 24, 25 to 27 or so. But that won't go on forever. And I think we discussed it earlier, Dan and Nick, that the physical market will take control. Mm -hmm. And I know that people are really, really tired of hearing that, but I think it will happen. I think it's inevitable. And once that takes place, then there'll be um, such a run to silver because people will realize um, that it is, you know, it's broken its chain, so to speak. And the thing about silver that's different than gold is 50% of the market is industrial use. Mm. Most industrial users are in the good old boys club called the Silver Users Association. You can't even find hardly anything on it on the web anymore. They took it off. But... You know, if you had the Wayback Machine, I think there are sites that do that. You could look it up. But this was DuPont, Dow Chemical, Kodak at the time, not now with digital photography. But 
these were the users and they had like a club to basically get silver direct from the refiners. Most, a lot of people have a misconception that the refined silver goes through the COMEX and then it goes out to industry or investors. No, very little silver actually gets packed into the COMEX. Most of it goes direct from a refiner to a user and the user could be a mint or the user could be uh, industry. So my point is this, maybe long-winded, is when there's a run to silver, the new people like Elon Musk, that I wrote that open letter to, he's not in the club. He's not in the Silver Users Association. So he's going to have to go to the open market and compete price-wise to be able to keep his solar panels going, mm-hmm. to be able to electrify his automobiles and everything else that he uses in his industrial base with, that requires silver. There's no substitute in many, many cases. So that is a part of the equation that I've talked about. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, we know it's real. How will it manifest and when will it manifest? We don't know. But I think once we get into the 33, 34 range for silver, it's a, just a skip and a jump to get back up to 40, 50. There's not much overhead resistance. So when you have a new high, the psychology is extremely easy to understand. Very easy. I'll use Bitcoin or any market. So when you own something that you bought at 10,000 and now it's 20,000 and the highest price had ever been till that time, was 17.5 or something like that for Bitcoin. I don't follow it that closely, but I, I watch. So everyone owns at 20,000 says, I'm not going to sell. It's the highest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. So there's actually nothing more bullish in any market than a new high for a while. So then what happens is a few new buyers, doesn't have to be a lot of pressure, a few new buyers buy it and it goes to 30,000. And then more buyers buy it and go to 40,000 and you get the picture, but mm. all the way up, not everyone will hold the whole way up, but many people will, or they'll peel off. They've got a plan, which I teach in the second chance book, but all right, I'm in at 20. I'm going to sell 10% at 30, 15% at 40, 20% at 50. And the last 15% at, you know, 60,000 or whatever. I mean, it's good to have a plan because all markets, all markets go up and down. So with silver, I mean, the mindset with the silver people is pretty strong. And when they see silver going from 50 to 75, there aren't going to be a lot of sales. There will be from the refiners and there will be from the mines. The mines are going to, you know, be making a lot of fiat by producing silver. But there could be, say could not would, be a bidding war for that silver because if Elon Musk needs it or he's out of business and he's got a big contract with the Japanese government to put, you know, solar panels in for the, you know, government, he's going to bid up because he needs it and he can't fulfill his contract without it. So there's, I think, bright days ahead for the silver Mm -hmm. market. And I think not too many people really understand the duo dynamic that goes along with silver that some people overlook. A lot of people believe that silver is just an industrial commodity, but legally it is money. There's no doubt about it. So to summarize, just to give a quick summary on that. So you would say, we could say then there's two primary forces. You have the monetary value as an investor, and then you have the industrial component, such as the green, the green initiative, um, industrial panels, the electrification of the world. So those would be two major driving forces that would drive the demand to a point where there's the bottleneck and that bottleneck would, is what we're waiting for. 
we are. I mean, you could, you know, it's, you know, it remains, it remains to be determined. Um, am I right? I, you know, we'll find out. But, but it, makes um, it makes sense because, mm -hmm. as I said, the, uh, the new people to the industrial side, mostly solar, they don't have a really strong relationship with these other people that have had a developed relationship with the refinery side. So they're going to have to compete. I think we're coming up on an hour here, but um, one last question for you. Cause I mean, we, we could talk about this for hours. Nick and I have been, uh, you know, silver bulls for the last two years. And this just goes back to the fact that you had governments printing all kinds of money uh, into the system. Canada today, for example, just announced that they're going to spend another $101 billion uh, for their budget. Although it's I'm losing not hope in Canada, <laughs> although it's not, uh, it, it's not like the scale uh, of, of what the U S has been, um, you know, at, this is probably going to be a psychological thing for most people to say that this is a normal thing. The government is going to pay me to do stuff. You know what I mean? So um, I want to use that and then just say they use that number, they use that money they put into the market. We consume, we prop up the GDP and they say, look, the market's growing. Yeah. Right. But and it, to me, we're, we're, ju we're just paying them to tell us we're growing by giving us money that we're just giving them back. Exactly. Now it's, Someone did a good article. I forget who I give them credit. Talked about that very thing. Most of the GDP is by funny money. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> so it's what not real growth. My, my question is, and this is perfect because what is going, to, is, is there going to be something you think that is one? And I think we could both agree. Uh, three of us can agree on this is, is there a better metric than GDP? And two, will another metric be used in the future to replace GDP because it's actually just so flawed? Mm, I'd probably have to go back to the Mises Institute and read a few papers on that. I don't really have one off the top of my head, but what you want is the truth. You want real labor. You want to know what the labor force is doing. I mean, labor is, what, is the production uh, of any material good and also any intellectual good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, intellectual labor to make a PowerPoint and present it at a conference. So, Labor's number one. How to measure it exactly, I'm not sure. But, you know, if you look at the labor participation, it's pathetic in the United States, but they gloss it over with the way they account for it because there's all these accounting tricks that are used throughout the system. I mean, there's something like, I don't know, 10 or 20 uh, large corporations like Amazon, I think Chevron, Mobile, some of the oils that paid zero tax, you know, and yet everybody's worried about this tax increase for corporations. So, Anyway, we can go on and on. I think it's, uh, you'd have to have a metric to me that actually measured labor as number one. You could probably make a subset of physical goods as well, but labor pretty much tells a story. And, you know, I'm, I'm rethinking this. I mean, if it's all robotics, I mean, for a think thought experiment, if everybody is replaced by a robot um, and everyone gets a UBI, universal basic income, because we're so productive with the robots who don't take vacation or strike for higher wages. Um, you know, so there's a lot to think about. I really don't have a good answer. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> it, there, there's so many other questions that we could definitely discuss on, but um, I think we'll, have uh, you, we'll definitely have to have you back on. We, we would love to have you back on. And um, I think what Nick and I will do is we, we we'd love to, uh, to kind of collaborate and help you out with that millennial, uh, millennial growth pod, uh, you know, aspect initiative, initiative yeah. that you guys yeah. are doing, but, um, 
David, thank you so much. It's, it's been an awesome, absolute pleasure meeting you and, and having you share sort of the wealth of knowledge that you've accumulated over the last decades. Um, where can the listeners uh, find you just so uh, they, they know where to go? Yeah, the best place is themorganreport.com, all one word, themorganreport.com. And I cover everything, not just silver. I do the whole resource sector. But the market is screaming gold and silver are the place to be right now. I'm looking at copper. We've looked at uranium. It's doing well. We have an asymmetrical trade in technology that uses electronic waste. So there's a lot of things that we look at. I just want to get people familiar with the fact that although silver is kind of my specialty, the Morgan Report is more broad-based. It's a macro. You're more of a macro report with, a, with certain niches like silver. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's very awesome. David, mm-hmm. thanks so much. It's an honor to meet you, and we look forward to having you on our next episode in a few, in a few weeks. Great. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, thanks, guys. guys. Bye-bye.